Well, hopefully everyone's been able to get a handout. Uh, we have some blanks where you can fill in, so it'll be real easy for you to follow along. Uh, not too many that it's overwhelming. I just wanted to mention, as you're turning to Matthew 28, Matthew 28 is where we're going to be looking this evening. I just wanted to say that it is a privilege to be here with you tonight. Uh, your pastor is a dear friend who is a constant encouragement and challenge to me. His commitment to the Lord, his discipline to seek the Lord and serve him in a disciplined way, and, and his commitment to the scriptures is always a challenge, and I deeply appreciate his friendship and uh, am very privileged to be here tonight. So. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 28, Matthew 28, and I'm going to actually read verses 16 through 20, but we're going to focus in on 18 through 20. I know very familiar verses, but trust the Lord will use the message tonight to be encouragement and challenge to all of us. Uh, in verse 16, it says, but then, or but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray before we get started this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the recording of this conversation that has had dramatic effect on the church and continues to do so. Father, help us to be committed like the disciples, the apostles were challenged to be committed at that time. Help us to be committed to taking the message of the gospel around the world in our neighborhoods, to family, to neighbors, to friends, to co-workers. Help us, Father, to be committed to taking that gospel message as well as being focused on growing in our own relationship with you and encouraging other believers to do the same. We pray that you'd open our understanding from your word tonight. Help us to understand this important responsibility that we all have as believers. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, about a month ago, we had the privilege of watching the Olympics again and getting to see uh, USA. You know, if you, if you didn't know, maybe you have it on DVR and you haven't finished watching it yet. I'm going to ruin it for you. But uh, the United States came out on top, right? They won the most golds or uh, total medals at least. I believe golds as well. Did very well. Well, it's always a joy to watch the Olympics, and the opening ceremony sometimes can be a uh, real delight to watch as well. But really, the Olympics begin with the torch relay, if you're familiar with that. Basically, it starts many days ahead of time, and they line up lots and lots of people that are going to carry this torch. They, they start, uh, I believe they start some kind of fire and grease somewhere, and they light the torch, and they then carry this torch and they hand it off. And for this year's Olympics, they had to travel 8,000 miles with that torch. So they had 8,000 different people involved in relaying that torch. And each person that's involved in that relay has the responsibility to take that torch, protect it, pass it on then securely to the next person, ensuring they have it and then can carry it on and then later pass it on as well. I use that just as a familiar example of something we've just witnessed to give us a little bit of an analogy in how we as believers have responsibility to carry on the message of the gospel. It started here, we see in Matthew 28, and how Jesus is commanding the 11 apostles that they are to go and make disciples of all nations. And that responsibility continues down to us today. 
So as we look at this responsibility, or as we've titled the message here tonight, the mission of the church. See, the church didn't exist yet, but what Jesus is doing is preparing these 11 men for their role and what would be the role in the the church of carrying on the mission of the church. So that mission, we can say very simply in two words, is here described as making disciples. They have the responsibility, and we as well in our day and age have the responsibility of making disciples. So your first blank there, as you look at point number one, what we're going to see as we focus in on verse 18 is we're going to see the power, power for the mission. Jesus describes in verse 18, he says this, he says, he he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So you notice your second blank there. Authority here, the idea is that of power, that of power. One uh, dictionary that I looked at described this word as the right to control or command meaning authority or absolute power. So as the Son of God, Jesus had and has all power. The power to do this mission, the authority behind the mission, is God Himself. Jesus says He had all power and authority given to Him. Now, I think the point here, and we're going to look over at Philippians chapter 2 to help us see this, but the point here is he has been going through the temporary stage of humiliation leading up to his death on the cross. And now that work has been completed, and he's been raised from the dead, and now it's time to carry on the next stage of the program, and that is for the spread of the gospel, the making of disciples. So he says here, all power has been given unto me. Just want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2, another very familiar passage. Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about this idea of his humiliation, but then his exaltation. It says in verse 8, Philippians 2, starting there, and we'll read down to verse 11. says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And this is what is involved in our mission. We are calling people to bow the knee, to submit to Jesus as Lord. And he's saying here, he has received all power as the Son of God. He is God the Son, has all power, and therefore that is behind the mission that we are doing. Um, Your next blanks there talks about the suffering servants has now become the risen Lord. Has now become the risen Lord. And the resurrection demonstrated that He was the Son of God with power, which is almost exactly what Romans 1-4 says. He is declared to be the Son of God uh, by the resurrection. But we see here the power for the mission Um, We also see the basis for the mission is Christ's authority. He is the absolute sovereign authority behind the mission. The mission that we carry out as the church in making disciples is God's plan. It's God's mission. We are doing what God has determined we should do. Have you ever, in a work situation, had a situation come up when your boss or your superior wasn't around? And there was a crisis of some sort, and you had to be the one to deal with it, and you weren't exactly sure how your boss 
would or wouldn't support what you felt you needed to do. So you're kind of nervous about that support that you might get. Sometimes you act in that situation, you do the best thing, and your boss later finds out and they are positive and they, they commend you for it. Sometimes they're not happy with the result. We, we have that situation come up at times. But in this case, as a church, as individual believers, we have the God of the universe as our authority behind us telling us to carry out this mission. We have the support of the God of the universe in doing this work. There is no king, there is no ruler, there is no politician that ultimately can stand in our way and tell us we're doing the wrong things and obstruct us because God is behind this. It is His mission that we are carrying out at His command. Now to be clear, yes, there are human authorities that can and do get in our way and cause problems. But the authority, the power behind the mission is God's. We do this work and we rely in doing this work upon the power of God. This is God's mission. This is God's mission. And so we do it under His authority and power and therefore don't have to be afraid, don't have to have reservations, but we do it wholeheartedly without fear, striving to please and glorify God in the process. Because the work is God's. We have His power behind us. What I want you to also see, number two, is that this mission is planned out. So point number two is the plan, the plan of the mission. So what exactly are we supposed to do? What is the plan? Don't know about you, but uh, in the workplace or when you're building something, maybe even around the house or something, to start the work without knowing what the plan is, is very frustrating. Um, in my other job right now, um, as uh, Pastor Elwood mentioned, I, I have two jobs. I'm assistant pastor up in Flint. My other job, I work at the university and I do IT support. Right now, the, the university is completely changing how they do things. So we're going through this reorganization. So at, what, at the, what they're doing is they're changing out everybody's computers. They're changing what's put on those computers. And they're changing all of the support structure all at the same time. Now, Thankfully, we are at least doing it department by department, so it's not total chaos. But sometimes we find ourselves not knowing what the plan is, what we're supposed to do, and so people just making their best guess. But thankfully, we have a very clear plan from the Lord what we're supposed to do. And what is that plan? In verse 19, we have the plan. And it goes into verse 20 as well. It says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. On first read, you might think, and, and I do know that your pastor preached this uh, about a year and a half ago, so he, I believe he covered this as well. I was able to listen to some of it on the uh, website. You got it. But um, the main verb of this verse isn't go, the main verb is make disciples. What, the significance of that is the main plan is to make disciples. That is what we are called to do. That's what Jesus was commanding the apostles to do, was to make disciples, to make converts who would grow in the faith and be taught in the faith, walk with God, and eventually reproduce themselves as well. So the focus, the plan here, the main verb is make disciples. And as I was hearing that message, and I remind you as well, it's not just seeking for somebody to, as we say, get saved. It is for someone to come to know Christ and live for Him 
and learn to follow Him on a consistent and daily basis. Our goal, our desire as believers, as a church, we work together for the purpose of making disciples. Seeing people turn from their sin, come to trust in Christ, and live for Him and spend a lifetime learning what it means and striving to be what it takes to be a faithful follower of Christ. God's plan is for us to be involved in making disciples. The basic idea of the word disciple, the basic meaning, is that of a learner. Someone who is learning. And the one who the disciple is to be learning about, the object of their learning, is Christ. And He is also the objective. Christ is the one they are to learn of so that they may live like Christ. They are to become imitators of Christ. And so our involvement, our concern is not just that somebody raises a hand for salvation, but that someone becomes ultimately like Christ. Because that is what God is doing. What God is doing is taking sinners, forgiving them and cleansing them from their sin, and ultimately making them to be like Christ, that they would be presented before God, holy, and blameless. That's God's goal. That's God's plan. That should be our plan. But a disciple is what we are seeking to make here. A disciple is a learner, but it also requires not just taking in the content of the teaching, but a change of behavior, a change of attitude, a change of mind, and then an imitation in the process, learning to imitate what Christ is like. Just as a simple illustration, I give you this example that happened in our family. Um, My oldest son, Michael, is now 12, and he's begun uh, taking on the task of uh, cutting the grass, actually he's done it in our family for a while, but he's also sometimes cutting grass for other people. And he's so he's cutting the grass a lot. Well, one time my wife Joanne and I had opportunity to go to a, a yard sale in the area and we found a little toy lawnmower that was old enough for our younger son, our youngest son, who's three, to be able to have and to play with. So one afternoon we found this thing, just a two, three dollar toy, able to bring it home. And Michael, the older son, just happened to be cutting the grass on that day when we, we brought that lawnmower home. And so when we brought out our son Wesley, the younger son, to see this toy, the, the lawnmower, immediately he was excited and then began to play with that little lawnmower. And what do you think he started to do? He immediately looked to see what his big brother was doing, and he tried to do the same kinds of things, and he's kind of looking over his shoulder to see what his big brother was doing, trying to imitate him. He was trying to follow his big brother. And in a similar way, what we are striving to do is to make disciples of Christ, that they would become imitators of Christ. And an important part of that process as well is that we as believers need to be the right kinds of examples too. We need to be good disciples. We need to be good followers of Christ so that like Paul said on a number of occasions to churches that he was writing to, he said, be followers of Christ as I am or Follow me as I follow Christ. That's discipleship. It's not just having the name erased from the book that results in someone going to hell. Not that there is the literal book that 
they go to hell. There is a book of life. They get blotted out. It's not just that they get in the book of life or they're in the book of life. It's that they become like Christ. That's the goal. But yes, it starts with a salvation decision. But it's more than just making a decision on that day. It is a lifetime change. And uh, as a church, that is the goal of what we should be focused on. Making disciples. Winning people to Christ that they would become like Christ. So, there are some other verbs, though, in this passage. One of which we already read and and, uh, mentioned was the word go. Verse 19, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, a couple things about this. It isn't the main verb. But I do believe it carries a force that was intended for the, the apostles to understand they needed to do something. They needed to go. And in what sense did they need to go? They needed to go to the nations. They needed to go and reach people in other places. Um, let's, look, let's look at uh, Matthew and a couple other places to see how Christ, in His initial ministry, will see His focus was on the Jewish people. Look at Matthew chapter 10 with me. Matthew chapter 10. And we'll look at verses 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 5. Matthew 10. Verse 1, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus is sending out his disciples with uh, the purpose of removing unclean spirits and healing diseases, right? Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. They were to focus on the Jews. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to chapter 15, Matthew. Matthew 15. This is personally one of my favorite gospel narratives, interactions that we see with somebody in Jesus. And this is a a woman whose daughter, uh, I believe, has a demon. She's coming to Jesus. She's heard about Jesus. It, it says that she is from the dist- or, uh, she's a Canaanite woman, verse 22, Matthew 15. She's a Canaanite woman. She began to cry out, verse 22, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, verse 22. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. Verse 24, finally he answers. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, then verse uh, verse 25, she bows down, asks him to help. Lord, help me. Verse 26, and he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he's saying, you're not an Israelite. I'm sent to help the lost sheep of Israel. He does end up helping her. Her faith is demonstrated by her persistence in continuing to ask. And so he does give her eventually what she's asking. But it does show the the focus Jesus had before his death and resurrection was upon the Jewish nation. That was where his primary focus was. But now in Matthew 28, as he's saying... Go and make disciples of all nations. Now that the resurrection has happened, the gospel is going to be taken to the Gentiles. There are going to be people reached through the apostles and obviously through the people they've reached as well because Jesus is commanding them to take the gospel to the gospel to all nations. So, There is a shifting of focus that happens in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you read the book of Acts, a very familiar verse, uh, uh, 1.8, 
Jesus says that they were to be witnesses for him where? Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as you read the book of Acts, that's how you see it unfold. They start out in Jerusalem. It begins to spread out, partly due to persecution being one of the big reasons. But it it spreads out. And then we see Paul going all across the globe with the gospel message. And it's connected to this mission that Jesus gave here in Matthew 28. And we, as Gentiles, thank God that it did. Right? Because that means the West got the gospel, which means we've heard the gospel. We've had opportunity to trust Christ. We have become believers because the gospel did go out to the world. Thank God for that. So there is a command here that they need to take the gospel to all nations. But this should not be misunderstood to mean that this passage only applies to foreign missions. The work of making disciples, as we talked about in Acts 1.8, happens everywhere. It happens in our local area. Uh, That's Jerusalem mentioned in 1.8 for them. But that's Royal Oak for you or your uh, areas where you live as well might be included in that. Surrounding cities. It is okay to reach people in Troy as well. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be just stealing church members, of course. But we do, as we have opportunities around us, share the gospel wherever we're at. Whether it be work, our neighbors, family, friends. The point is, the gospel is not to be bound. It is to go everywhere. And it is to be our desire and our obligation to be seeking to make disciples in all places. We also see here that they're, command, they're given the, the command as well to... Uh, I'm sorry, the, another verb here, but it's not in the form of a command, but it, it is uh, what they are to do, and it's part of making disciples, is that they are to baptize them. They are to baptize them. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So... Upon a profession of faith, a new believer is to be baptized. And Jesus is here establishing the the connection between profession of faith there and the important obedience step of being baptized. And we see in, in mentioning here, he mentions the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The word name is singular, but yet we have reference to three persons. I believe this is a very clear reference to the Trinity. The the initial act of obedience the believers are supposed to do in becoming baptized is becoming part and, and becoming identified with the triune God. And they do that uh, by profession of faith and becoming baptized. They're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we see from the book of Acts that profession of faith, receiving the word, it talks about in Acts 2, and being baptized then led to them being added to the church, which is how we also in our day practice upon a genuine profession of faith and baptism, we receive a person into membership in the local church. In addition to baptizing, another key part of making disciples was that they were also to be taught. In verse 20 it says, Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In addition to baptism, another key way in which they were to make disciples was that they were to teach. They were to teach. It says they are to teach them. Who's them? 
them are the ones that made a profession of faith that have trusted Christ and have gotten baptized. Then you teach them. And what do you teach them? What's the content? He says you are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Where do we find the content of what we are to teach new believers? The Scriptures, right? The apostles at that time didn't have the New Testament Scriptures, but they were going to write it. Many of them were directly writers of Scripture. Many others were influencers of those who did write the Scriptures. But the content of what disciples are to be taught Believers are to be taught is found in the scripture. And that is why I know from knowing your pastor and knowing your church being of a similar mindset to our church as well, is that the emphasis here is on teaching God's word, teaching and preaching God's word. And that's in direct obedience to this command. And while teaching and preaching is absolutely critical for the church, it's also not the only way in which there is teaching that takes place. There is also discipleship through relationships that we have in the church as well. We as fellow believers teach and encourage as, if, as Hebrews 10 24 and 25 talks about that we are provoking one another to love and good works. There are challenges that we give as fellow believers to one another to help each other to grow in this discipleship. Now, a couple other things about this teaching. It it, it says that we are to teach. What are we to teach? All things that have been commanded. And, and, it's, and it says there, I, I uh, failed to uh, emphasize. Let me do that real quick here. Teach them to observe. What's the idea of observe? Obey. So again, teaching is not just content, not just material, not just knowledge. Teaching communicates knowledge for the purpose of obedience. We are striving to make disciples by teaching them not only who Christ is, what He did, what He said, but how He lived and commanded that we live, that our lives and their lives would be different. But He is also, it says here, to teach all that I've commanded. That's why... We're committed to expositional preaching because we believe it is the best way to communicate what the Scriptures are saying and working through books and going throughout the Bible, teaching the whole counsel of God. That's what Christ is commanding. Teaching the whole counsel of God. And in making disciples, that is what we're striving to do. Teach them the whole counsel of God. So again... That is a lifetime process. None of us here can raise our hands and say, I've mastered all that Christ has commanded. In fact, if we did that, we'd immediately be in trouble, right? Immediate disobedience because of a lack of humility, being deceived, right? We all struggle with some areas and are continuing to learn even up until our last days. But it is a lifetime commitment as believers that we are one to be disciples, but also that we are to be disciplers. Um, I had one relative who died a few years ago. But one of the comments that uh, my wife and I, uh, or she really made to me about him, was when you'd go to see him. He was a, a senior saint. He was a believer for a number of years, decades When we're with him, he was constantly using the scriptures to try and communicate truth to us. It was his constant intention to teach us things he had learned, that God had shown him from the scriptures. That ought to be our goal, 
that we are constantly learning and that we are also constantly trying to communicate what we've learned to others because we are becoming uh, more mature as disciples. Um, and just to work, uh, just in Sunday school this past week, um, we, we were talking about church membership. And in going through the preparation for that lesson, something really jumped out at me in one of the, the websites it, uh, that I came across. It was talking about church membership. Something just really became really clear to me, and I want to share because I think it fits very well in, in this context, which is, Sometimes in our day and age, we tend to think of membership, of becoming a member, as like something we just can bounce in of and out of and just walk away, no big deal. But really, the biblical idea of being a church member, that, that of being a disciple, is that one, as an individual, I, by becoming a member of a church, I am submitting myself to the church's oversight of my discipleship. I am to be a disciple who is constantly learning the things that Christ has commanded. So when I join a church, I am submitting myself to the the body of the church to be taught by the church, to grow as a member, and that my discipleship, my responsibility in fulfilling Matthew 28 as far as my own growth in discipleship, I'm submitting to the church as my church body. But it also goes two ways. Because as a church member, when I receive somebody into the fellowship, I am taking responsibility that I am willingly going to be involved in their discipleship. Now again, understanding that teaching and discipleship is not just getting up in front of everybody and speaking and preaching or teaching. It also is that individual love and challenging one another, as we talked about in Hebrews, provoking one another to good works. It goes both ways. We are committing ourselves to be submitted to the uh, discipleship of the church, but we, as a church member, also are committing to be involved in the discipleship of others. It's an ongoing process, and it's a lifetime process. And it is what we do in being committed to obeying Christ. Now, I gave you the torchbearer illustration, our analogy at the beginning. But like every analogy, they're not perfect. There are parts of the analogy that break down. So when I gave, and maybe some of you are worried when I use that analogy, but when you talk about the torchbearer with the Olympics and how that process works, You have one torchbearer. They do need to securely make sure that torch gets to the next person and it it goes on its journey. But essentially, once that happens, their job is done, right? Well, that's where it breaks down. Because in discipleship, that's not how it works. We're not just the people that get somebody saved, so to speak. Ultimately, as we discussed in point number one, it's God's power. It's God's authority behind this work. It's not just seeing somebody saved and we walk away from the work. It is an engagement. It is a commitment. It is an involvement in other people's lives. And you know what? Sometimes we just don't like that. Because sometimes we're concerned that people are getting in our business. But as fellow believers of the same body, we are to lovingly help one another grow in Christ. And it's in obedience to Christ that we do it. That's what's involved in making discipleship, uh, making disciples. Are we committed that we're going to be involved in that kind of discipleship? Are we going to be committed to people in making that kind of effort? Um, Are there people that we're praying for, that we're longing for God to do that work in their heart, not just to save them from a Christless eternity, though that obviously is extremely important, but also that God would change them and make them like Christ. But that is going to take work and time and effort on our part. Thirdly, we see the promise, the promise of the mission, uh, the end of verse 20. Jesus tells the apostles, 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thinking of it as the end of the age helps us see very clearly that this is a command that continues down to us today because we still are in the church age. Even though the apostles who Jesus was speaking to at that time are now with him in glory, we are left behind, so to speak, not in the sense of having missed the rapture, but we are still here on earth with the responsibility to carry out this mission. But there is promise made here by the Lord, and he says, I am with you. So we have a promise here of his presence. We have the promise of his presence. I won't have you turn there right now, but if you're familiar with Joshua, in Joshua 1, when he's taking over for Moses, God gives him a very similar encouragement. Joshua was stepping into the responsibilities that were very large. And Moses, you look at the Old Testament, probably one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And Joshua had to step into his shoes, and God reminded Joshua, I'm with you. I'm with you. I won't, let, I, I won't fail you. I won't forsake you. And you will have success. So I think there are a few ideas that we can take away from this presence here. Number one, I think we can understand that God is our provider. What does that mean? God is our provider in that He is going to give us the power or the equipping. Or you might even say the grace enabling us to do this work. We can do this work because it's God's work. He's commanded for us to do it, and He equips us to do it. He provides the strength. He provides the power that we need to do this work. He gives us the substance that we need. He provides the comfort. His presence is a comfort, a reassurance. Squashing fear. I believe it also is an indication that this work will be productive. Not only will He provide, it will also be a productive work. And that means there will be success. But I want to be very careful in how we say that. It's success in the global sense. There are going to be churches built. There are going to be people won to Christ. There are going to be people that grow in the faith. We don't know if that's going to be the family member we're praying for right now. We don't know if that's going to be our neighbor. We don't know if it's going to be the co-worker. But this is God's work. There will be people saved. There will be disciples made. There will be growth in believers' lives. So we can proceed with great confidence that there is going to be a measure of success. We might not see it. It may be a surprise to us on Judgment Day when we're rewarded for that work, but there is going to be success because God is involved in this work and there are going to be people saved. There are going to be believers that grow. There's also, I believe, a preservation involved here. The idea that God being with us is a protection. That doesn't mean we'll never suffer. Paul is a clear example of that. He suffered for the faith. Um, Seems to be an indication he died for the faith. But God will preserve and protect us. It's amazing. Our family devotions, we are just reading in Acts in the 20s, where it talks about how Paul is headed back to Jerusalem and everyone's telling him, don't go. But he's insistent that he's got to go. And the reason they're saying don't go is because they're going to kill you. or They're going to try to kill you. And Paul says, I'm re-, basically says, I'm ready to die if that's what God would have me to do. He, he, he's committed to going in obedience to the Lord and taking the gospel there. And so he goes 
And then uh, the belief, the, the, it talks about the elders of the church have this plan on how Paul can kind of convince people that might be watching him that he's going into the temple and he's trying to abide by the rule, the law, if you will, in, in that regard. And he still miss someone misinterprets what he did and starts a big riot and he's he's being attacked by the town. And yet what happens? The Roman government steps in and essentially Paul pulls him out and protects him. It wasn't the Roman government to be praised there. It was God preserving Paul to accomplish what God had intended for Paul. Paul was not going to be allowed to die until it was his time. Until God had finished with Paul. There is a preservation that takes place because God is present with us. Notice also he says, always and even until the end of the age. So there is, I believe, a very confident reassurance here by the Lord Jesus Christ that he is with us. And the idea isn't just that he's present, but the idea is that he is helping us. He is protecting us. He is providing for us in doing this work. And that presence is going to be always even if we're not aware, even if we don't perceive that it's going well. He's with us. So in thinking about the work of the church, the work of us as believers, as members of the church, what is it that we are to be doing? We are to be involved in the mission of the church, which is making disciples. In our I believe it's in our church vision statement. We basically say something that takes this concept, just uh, adds another word to make it a little bit uh, more clear. We, we say we are working to make and mature disciples. There is a conversion that we're seeking, but also to help people mature in their walk with God. And that's what we as believers should be committed to. So just a few questions for you to think about. Are we committed to reaching the lost? Are we burdened for those that don't know Christ? Are we committed to doing the work of taking the message? But are we also committed to the ongoing work that would be necessary to help someone coming to Christ to grow? Are we committed to our fellow believers in the church to help them grow. See, I, I'm of the opinion that every believer in the church should strive to have somebody who is somebody they can teach and be a, be a discipler too, but also be discipled by. There, there's always somebody more mature and always somebody newer in the faith. And looking for both of those opportunities should be our goal. I mentioned that... God being in the work and being His work and Him being with us means there will be success. But on the human side of things, we don't always know what that is and what that looks like and when that's going to happen or if it's going to happen in the way we're thinking at all. I just wanted to share with you as we bring it to a close here about a man who was a missionary and uh, didn't see, humanly speaking, a whole lot of results. So what I'm, I've taken some things I've gotten from uh, a website that uh, talks about this man's life. His name, maybe some of you have heard, is Samuel Zwemer. I think it's Zwemer. And he was a missionary in the Persian Gulf throughout Arabia, Egypt, Asia Minor. And it's said here that after 38 years of missionary work, He had seen his efforts produce fewer than 12 conversions. Fewer than 12. That's less than one every three years. Yet, producing converts wasn't his ultimate goal. He said, The chief end of missions is not the salvation of men, but the glory of God. We are faithful to God's call in our lives for no other 
ultimate goal than that of bringing glory to God. We may or may not see individuals converted. That is what we're striving for and we're praying for. But that may or may not happen. But ultimately, we obey God so that He is glorified. Notice what else this man went through on the mission field. It says, Trials and hardships were present companions to him on the mission field. A partner, a partner in the early days on the mission field died suddenly after a short illness and was believed to have been poisoned. His younger brother, Peter, became ill and died in 1898, just six years after joining the mission. In another six years, Samuel's two young daughters were to die of dysentery. In the midst of this suffering, Samuel and his wife Amy marked their daughter's graves with an affirmation of God's sovereignty. Worthy is the lamb to receive riches. Here's a man committed to making disciples in obedience to God's word. Spent 38 years working on the hardest fields. And saw less than 12 people converted in his lifetime. But he was committed to the glory of God. He was committed to obeying God. And we as well should be committed to making disciples. The results ultimately are God's. We can't guarantee the conversion of anybody. We trust God. We pray and ask God. But ultimately, our goal, by the grace of God, is to make disciples, striving to make disciples, and leaving the results of that with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the clear command of Scripture. It makes it clear that we are to seek to see others converted to Christ and to help them grow in the faith, understanding what you've recorded in your word. Help us as well, Father, to humbly recognize areas of our lives that we still fall short, areas where we still need to grow. But help us, Father, to be committed to obeying you, to be willing to go to a foreign field if that's what you'd have us to do or simply being willing to talk to that family member who never likes to hear what we have to say help us to have the courage help us to be committed to obeying you and I pray that you would help us to see and be involved in uh, the making and maturing of disciples and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen